You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Comboyne, New South Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beapai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Great to see you again, Margot. And this is our wrap for 2021. We're going to reflect upon... Another another extraordinary year in coronavirus world. But, Margot, I've got a surprise for you. Have a listen to this and see if you can guess what the surprise might be. Come in, niece. Come in, Tim Dunlop. Hi, Peter. Hi, Margot. How are you? Hello. I think the last time you were on was the rap last year, and since then you've written a novel and moved to France. So, hi. Yeah, <laughs> things have changed. Yeah. It's great to have you back, Tim, back behind the Transit Zone microphone. Great to hear your voice and to get a glimpse of you looking well and looking rather smooth at perhaps an extra in Amelie or something like that. <laughs> Nisa's obviously worked its uh, Gallic magic on you, has it? Yeah, it's a, it's a very lovely city. It's a nice place to be. You know, it was all about getting over to visit our son who lives here and works here and we were concerned with COVID, etc., that he wouldn't be able to get back home to Australia. So it took us a few months to organise to get permission to leave Australia. Part of the deal was that we had to commit to being away for at least three months. We're very fortunate we were able to make that commitment. So we've been here since September it's been quite a time. I mean, it was it was such a contrast coming from a lockdown in Melbourne to Nice, which was pretty well opened, like most of Europe was pretty open. So, yeah, it's been quite an experience. Margot and I have been reading your transmittable stories, more a travelogue reflection upon what's been happening to you and lots of interesting stuff in there, which will come to some of that, both the travelogue stuff and also experiencing COVID within that situation in Europe too, the big next wave of COVID's there, obviously the new variant is affecting Europe. So let's come to that in a moment. But I just want to put a big wide lens on our podcast. We started these podcasts back, Margot and Tim, in August last year. And it was rooted very much in the idea of coronavirus world. We didn't have vaccines then. Of course, the whole vaccination scenario and debacle has occurred since then. Tim, just to bring you up to date, here in Victoria, over 1,400 new cases today. New South Wales cases have taken a real jump. They were down in the low hundreds there for a while. Both New South Wales and Victoria, as Margot will well know, have had two big super spreader events in nightclubs and hospitality venues. Tasmania is opening up, but they're shaking in their boots about COVID coming to that island, which has been relatively COVID-free. South Australia is still taking quite a hard line. McGowan, who's been much criticised, obviously, by the coalition government in Western Australia, is opening up ostensibly in early February. But of course, inevitably, there'll be a big influx of COVID into Western Australia, which has been relatively COVID-free. Brad Hazard, the health minister for New South Wales, stood up at a presser today and said, the latest modelling's telling him that by the end of January in New South Wales, there'll be 25,000 new cases a day. So we're in a very, very strange situation, Tim. I'd love to hear your views from where you are in the old world, looking back at us in Australia, and how you're perceiving, having experienced what's happening in Europe with COVID. How are you viewing us now and hearing about where we're at? As I say, when I left Australia, Melbourne was still in a pretty hard lockdown. Sydney was talking about opening up. When we got here, the situation in France anyway was that everything was pretty open. So it was very strange to arrive, come from like a Melbourne lockdown winter to a nice opened up summer. There were just people everywhere. um, It was quite confronting, you know, the restaurants and public transport, etc. you know, overflowing. There was just people everywhere. That was quite a strange feeling. France has done reasonably well in terms of their response, I think. So even within that opening up, it was predicated on vaccination, right? And even when we arrived in September, 
I think the vaccination rate was around about 80% of people above 12 were vaccinated. There were rules around mask wearing. You had to wear masks inside and on public transport, any kind of confined area. You also needed what they call a pass sanitaire, which is a vaccination pass. So to go to a restaurant or a theatre or a movie, you had to show that you had been vaccinated. You had to show your pass sanitaire. So we had to organise to get one of those for ourselves as well. There were evidence of protests. I recorded a few protests and there still seems to be a, a relatively vocal minority. You still see the odd protest around. I think particularly in regional parts of France, the protests are ongoing. We've been to, for instance, Avignon and into Provence, really, and seen quite a few protests, you know, a couple of protests, I should say, around there, around public buildings, etc. There is that, as in Australia, that minority who object to either vaccinations in general or the fact that you have to have a pass. But on the whole, most people here are quite supportive of it. I've been actually like completely surprised and impressed with how rigorously people adhere to the masking rule. It's very rare on a tram or on a bus or uh, in a restaurant that you see someone without a mask. Certainly at, at a restaurant, you can obviously take the mask off to eat. But pe- when people enter... Or like a shopping centre, there's a there's a mall down the road from us, a Westfield-type place uh, down on the main drag here. You just wouldn't see someone without a mask in that situation. So the adherence to that's been very good. And that's actually reflected even now with the new variant. The numbers here in France are ticking up like they're ticking up everywhere, but it's nothing like other European countries. So I think France has done quite well. So that's been an interesting comparison with Europe and I guess back home with Australia. But I I feel like I'm a bit out of touch with how it actually is on the ground in Australia. So I'd be interested to hear how people are reacting to I see the media reports, which of course tend to concentrate on the, the extreme cases, but I haven't got a sense of what it's like back there at the moment in shopping centres, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd be curious to hear that. Well, before Margot tells us about what life's like in Comboin in coronavirus world, just to bring you up to date then, just today, the Victorian government's taking off the requirement, the legal requirement, that you have to show your vaccination certificate to go into, say, a retail store. Like when I go to Mitre 10 down the road, they look for my vaccination certificate. Same with Bunnings. It's been a little bit slack. Bunnings is a little bit, yeah, maybe they'll look at your vaccination certificate. But Tim, you and I discussed the vaccination mandate notion well before it became such a difficult problem. We acknowledge that Morrison abdicated his responsibility to construct a a federal framework. He left it to the states, to corporations, to institutions like big universities, etc., and to small business to institute their own forms of vaccination mandates with some legal backing from the state governments. But now all that's going out the window at the moment. So... We're in a very strange situation. I personally look to the retail places I go to to have a vaccination requirement, but I think that's all slipping away now here. Mask wearing has become very slack. Noses out everywhere. I mean, it drives me batty seeing people just adorning their face with a mask with their nose out or around their chin. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. The requirement remains in Victoria to wear them inside and on public transport, but a fair bit of slackness there too. I don't think I quite realised that you had to present the VAX certificate in normal retail. That's something that doesn't happen here. I can go to Carrefour, which is you know, the local supermarket here. You have to wear a mask in there. You don't have to present the past sanitaire, but for restaurants, theatres, movie theatres a few other places. So it was never retail in general. It was just a few specific spots where people tended to gather and sit down or, um, you know, be crowded together like in a museum or something like that where you had to present it. I just don't go to supermarkets. We do click and collect. I went to a woodworking retailer today to buy a couple of tools and they required vaccination certificate to get in the door. Certainly the hardwares, certainly all those sort of places. What's it like in Comboin, Margot? What's your experience of coronavirus world this far down the track? Well, I was on a recent road trip and Canberra didn't have masks, but they're very strict on the QRs and your vac certificates. Sydney was very strict on the masks as well. 
And my experience of regional New South Wales is we are completely over it. No one cares about QRs, uh, masks, yeah, a bit. But, you know, everyone's just over it. I mean, today's the first day without a mask and it was such a shock to see people in the shops see their actual face. The people I talk to, and I'm one of them, is just goes, I, I actually don't give a shit if the, the virus comes back. I, I, just want, I just want to live a life. I think that's why Perrottet is doing what he's doing because I, I think he just gets so much blowback. People just don't want it anymore. Everyone's over it. We're all vaccinated. We all get our booster. Could we just focus on life again? That's the perspective I'm getting. So that reality, the idea of living with COVID, that ideology, the opening up ideology, let's go on with life, that has finally won the day, hasn't it? So people who are disadvantaged both in terms of their public health and economically, they've been left behind in this in this situation. And those objecting to being vaccinated at all, they're in a very bad place at the moment, I think. But Peter, I don't think people like your wife are left out to dry. I mean, if you're immunocompromised or anything like that, you can take the precautions you need to take. I think this personal responsibility stuff is, is where it's at now. I am a bit funny about them um, allowing unvaccinated people to just do whatever they like from today, given Omicron. I reckon that's a bit dangerous. I just wonder why Perrottet hasn't put that off for a week or two. I can't really see what's happening there apart from his earnest desire to have no more economic implications. But no doubt he's taking a risk. Like you probably heard um, Dr Chance said she, she really wants people to keep wearing their masks indoors. If it goes crazy, like in, in Europe, well, it goes crazy. But I honestly don't think people want to go back to, to what we've had in the last couple of years. It's just, um, that's enough, you know? But I feel like I'm in my own self-imposed lockdown now because uh, Norman Swan comes on the television the other night and says, well, the latest research says that if you've had two AstraZeneca, you've got almost no immunity against Omicron. My spouse has had her third shot. She's had a Moderna shot. She got it on the basis under the rubric of being immunocompromised. But where does that leave me now? I'd, I feel like out there is a very threatening place. Tim, you've mentioned arriving in France. So that wave is ripping through Europe at the moment, isn't it? The UK, where you're going to be going soon. And Germany, for example, seems stuck on about 65% vaccination, a lot of resistance to vaccination there. So all that stuff about vaccination will be the great panacea for this pandemic. The Scandinavian countries are, have the most rapidly growing uptake of the new variant at the moment. Apparently Denmark in particular, I think. Austria actually went into a lockdown for unvaccinated people recently. So some countries are still doing lockdowns. But yeah, um, Austria's like Germany. It's a, it's a reasonably low overall vaccination rate. I think it's under 70% there still. I'm actually surprised in Australia that we got through to the last lot of lockdowns without people objecting more. Not that I'm in favour of not following the lockdowns when they happen, but it is just such an immense strain to put on a society. There's no good answer here. Your, your situation is legitimate as well. You don't want to be walking around exposing yourself and therefore you know, potentially exposing your wife to it. So it puts huge restrictions on you. The notion that it's just personal responsibility, you know, it doesn't really cut it because of the social nature of the way the disease is spread. You might be fine in not being vaccinated or being able to move around, etc. In in those circumstances. But there's a social obligation, I think, to be aware of other people as well. And like, you know, if everybody just decided they weren't getting vaccinated, God knows where we'd be. It's that thing you get vaccinated for other people as much as you do for yourself, I think. So I would find it very depressing and very difficult to go back into uh, anything like the lockdown I left in Melbourne. And I don't think we should do that, but um, at this stage, probably. But people have to get vaccinated. And this is why I think we've got a right to be angry at the government for the slow rollout. It's been about vaccination from the very beginning and we could have avoided a lot of grief and probably a lot of these sorts of arguments if we rolled out the vaccines in a timely manner right at the beginning. No, you can't go back and fix that. But I don't think we should forget the fact that the government failed miserably 
in the rollout of it. Even now with the Omicron variant running around and, and going wild, the health minister in Britain announced yesterday that the modelling shows that there'll be 200,000 cases a day of that in Britain. It's just insane. God knows where they'd be without their high vaccination rates. So it's always been about vaccination. I don't think it's too much to ask people to be vaccinated under those circumstances. Tim, remember that period when all of Australia had zero there for a while? We were very zero obsessed in Australia. And I remember on this podcast very early on, Margot used the term Australia is like a nirvana. We were really keeping it out. We were looking around the rest of the world and going, oh my goodness, look at the rest of the world. We were chasing down every infection. And of course, those days are now well behind us. We had to, Peter. That, I mean, it was the only alternative. We had to lock down. We had to chase zero. People mock that now as if it was some weird obsession of various Labor state governments, etc. It was the only alternative we had because the federal government hadn't rolled out the vaccinations. So, you know, we had no choice. Oh, well, we had a choice. We could have, you know, let it rip as some people wanted to. But most people didn't want that. Most people were community-minded enough to be willing to go into lockdowns and do that. If that commitment is wearing off, it's understandable given how difficult those lockdowns have been. But the fact we don't have to do that to the same extent is because the vaccines exist. In the beginning, we had no choice. We had to chase zero, I reckon. And we did it successfully. And we don't get enough credit for that. But then we had that step change with Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales. And then here in Victoria, we got the backwash from that, really, the surge of infections down here as well, the, the whole gold standard propaganda. And then there was a bit of a moment there where Gladys Berejiklian, backed by Scott Morrison, basically said, let her rip in New South Wales. That's how I heard it. What did you think, Margo? I thought that she locked down too slow, about five or six days too slow. The evidence was growing and growing, and that led it into Victoria and New Zealand. You know, it reminded me of the Ruby Princess mm. last year. You know, they always fuck it up New South Wales and spread it everywhere else. <laughs> you know, so she was way too slow. And I couldn't stand her. Um, I've just recently moved to New South Wales, regional New South Wales, and the thing that struck me was that she just ignored the regions. When she locked down the regions, she didn't even do a press statement or a Twitter or anything. And then people told me that it wasn't like Queensland, that in New South Wales, the Premier is the Premier for Sydney and the Deputy Premier, the Nat, is the, is the Premier for the regions. And I found that really disconcerting. What also just freaked me out was that I remember coming down to Sydney from Brisbane and thinking, this is the most class-ridden city. You know, it's two Sydneys. And to see the Premier look after the, the rich beach suburbs, not lock down Bondi, and then create a police state in the inner west and the western suburbs where the people actually do the work to keep Sydney going, I found that really offensive. The whole thing was a, a big shock to me as a Queenslander. A very big shock, actually, and um, I didn't like what I saw at all. You know, Tim and Margot, what continues to amaze me almost every day of this pandemic is how easily we've come to accept very large death numbers. Remember the Gladys Berejiklian, death is terrible, but, and that idea of acceptable deaths. But we've just seen 800,000, Mark, passed in the United States. I think it's, what, about 140,000 in the United Kingdom. Huge death tolls elsewhere, even in Australia, We've sort of swallowed and accepted well over a thousand deaths for our population. And we kept that down by some of our lockdowns and the zero tolerance situation. So, Tim, how do you see that in terms of human psychology? The way we've accepted such enormous death numbers, the American one is, of course, the big example, 800,000 people. And that's probably an underestimate. United States citizens have died during this pandemic, but that has not spurred an extra response as I see it. So I muse every day on that human capacity to accept those huge death numbers. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I find it deeply problematic. And as I did from the beginning, when, as I say, we were all unvaccinated and there was, you know, there was a pretty strong call in some quarters particularly from some media organisations, we should just let it rip. We should just open up. Places like America basically did that under Donald Trump. England did it under Boris Johnson. Their tolerance for <laughs> their fellow citizens dying 
was much higher than it tended to be in Australia in general. It is quite a quite a shocking thing to see. And as you say, you know, America's just gone past the 800,000 mark. The state of Kansas announced, I think it was two days ago, that we're not going to do anything with vaccinations. We're not going to record the number of COVID cases or deaths. Basically, it doesn't exist anymore as far as the, the government of Kansas is concerned. We're just not going to acknowledge its existence in anything official. And the state governor said that if you've got any concerns about COVID, go and see your doctor. That was the answer. So the state has basically stepped back entirely from any involvement in the management of the greatest health threat to the world in, well, a century at least. I think we've talked about this before in, in sort of general terms. This is, has been the thing with COVID. It's it shone a light on these divides in society, as Marco said, the LGA divisions, the way Sydney responded to it. But I think just more generally in terms of how people understand the role of government, how people understand individuality, individual rights versus collective rights. And I think it found us fairly unprepared or in a, in a reasonably unsophisticated situation in terms of our general understanding of those sorts of issues. And we've been stumbling along ever since. And, you know, unfortunately, the, uh, the deaths are one metric for that debate that we've been having. Margot, how do you see that? The, the, our acceptance of the huge death toll, even here in Australia, but certainly in the United States, the United Kingdom, elsewhere around the world. But let's not even start to look at Africa and South Africa, which ostensibly is where the latest variant may have arisen. How do you see our attitude to death as you've witnessed it during the pandemic? I think Australia and New Zealand have led the world in not accepting death, haven't we? Our numbers are extraordinarily low. And I think we've succeeded partly because, you know, we're, we're both island nations at the bottom of the world, so we've got more control over our borders. We haven't got an individual rights-based regime as in America. And one of the things that I've sort of found quite gobsmacking, as someone who grew up under Sir Joe, I've always been a very strong supporter of a Bill of Rights in Australia, legislation or constitutional. But, you know, me and everyone else has given up on that years ago. And all of a sudden, the right <laughs> is quoting the American, you know, Second Amendment and Third Amendment and Fourth Amendment and claiming all these rights. And now we've got a religious right. And all of a sudden, it's the right that believes in a Bill of Rights. I found all this pretty wild. Also, the, the immediacy of the US far-right rhetoric just coming here to, to see QAnon people. I'll never forget till the day I died, that Melbourne protest where a, a protester walked across the road with a Confederate flag. And it was just, I found that very, very discombobulating. But yeah, look, I, I don't think we've accepted um, death at all in Australia. Our numbers are, are very low. In America, obviously, you know, they don't really seem to have any system at all in America. And it became politicised immediately due to Trump. In Britain, Britain was a funny one because remember the, the scientists there said at the beginning that herd immunity was the best way to combat it and I think Sweden did the same and so they were very very slow and because they were very very slow the numbers just went completely crazy but as far as the third world goes well you know we've completely failed as we always do and Omicron is our is our punishment isn't it. That's the vaccine nationalism we were all talking about earlier now it's come to bite us on the bum big time hasn't it and let's not forget that early on in Australia remember that strange period when they were saying oh when that was seen very much as an old person's disease, COVID-19. Oh, I think old people have had a good life. It's time for them to take one for the team. Remember that, Margot? <laughs> remember that little passage of, uh, of rhetoric and ideology early on? I don't you remember that in Australia. The big one was in Texas. I think it was Lieutenant Governor. And it was just like, wow. You know, particularly because Republicans tend to be quite old compared to, to Democrats. Honestly, I, I don't even look at America now. It's so depressing. I just hope and pray that, that we don't suffer the contagion. But of course we have. We've got, you know, Christensen on Alex Jones and Senator Rennick on, on Bannon and Craig Kelly, you know, Morrison's captain's pick last election, teaming up with Clive Palmer to have freedom rallies and, and all the rest of it. You can see we're going down that track. 
you can see the pressure Morrison feels to not even criticise his MPs who, who are trashing child vaccination now in, in inquiries. Obviously, he feels under enormous pressure from the far right. He's actually being run by the far right, let's be honest. You know, climate change, vaccination, mandates, no integrity, commission. I tell you what, if smaller Liberals don't stand up and, you know, basically effectively split from the Liberal Party and have a, a new, very loose coalition type party of moderate, mainly women, we're just headed for the American way. Like, it's it, it's pretty obvious, in my opinion, that this is... This is the time that Liberal moderates stand up and say we, we won't put up with this or um, or they they do what Morrison is, is banking on. They, they hold their noses and, and think of their hip pockets. We're going to talk about Indies in just a moment, but as Margot was talking, Tim, it reminded me that as we were doing the podcast, we heard about the big election in the United States. Biden won by a very big margin and there was a huge turnout. Did well, did turnout? he, Peter? Did he really win? Well, <laughs> as, here we are. Here we are doing this podcast at the end of 2021. The big lie is still running strong. A big majority of Republicans think they were robbed in that election. Of course, now we've got the Select Committee of the United States House of Representatives, largely Democrat, but with a couple of Republicans like Liz Cheney. But they are digging out some stuff, aren't they? Some extraordinary material coming from Mark Meadows, for example. He did give them quite a, a trench of documents, including PowerPoint presentations and email messages, etc., which really starts to chart what was happening in those days leading up to the 6th of January. So we are seeing a riven republic, a democracy that's really struggling to hold its head above the waves. Tim, what do you think? Absolutely. America's like on the cusp of becoming something else. I think it's completely legitimate to look at January 6th after Biden was elected, what happened at the Capitol as a dry run. It was planned. We know now that it was planned. Somebody said the other day the the only thing standing between kind of an undemocratic takeover of the American government was Mike Pence. At the end of the day, he wouldn't go along with Trump's calls to cancel, particularly the um, non-in-person voting counts. He, he wanted those cancelled. It's been going on for, what, 30 years or something. The... The Republicans have constantly sought through their system where electoral boundaries and voting organisation is the responsibility of state governments. They've constantly sought to manipulate boundaries and who can vote and voting rights so that they're choosing who gets to vote rather than voters choosing who gets to be in government. And this has just stepped up to a new level. There's a new level of violence with it. There's a new level of extremism with it. There's been a wholesale takeover of the Republican Party, one of the two great parties. The two standard parties of the American system has been completely taken over by, you know, what you'd probably call a Trump faction. I wrote an article recently and called it the most dangerous, the GOP is the most dangerous organisation in the Western world. I think that's true because they're still seen as a standard and legitimate party of potential government in the United States. And really, they're anything but. They've turned into this right-wing revolutionary force that's looking to implement undemocratic reforms. They want to rule without democracy. They'll do everything they can. That's not going to change anytime soon unless good people stand up to it unless the media starts to recognise what's going on and honour their obligations to democracy rather than to balance. It's a deeply, deeply worrying situation. I'm not at all confident about the outcome. And Tim, who's got the guns? Yeah, well, there's, there's Who's got too. the guns? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is increasingly becoming more overtly violent. And as you say, it's a heavily armed society, especially on that side of the political divide. Margot, I'm just thinking back to some of our earlier podcasts. We talked about American journalism quite a bit. It now seems very quaint in hindsight when something like, say, the New York Times were very reluctant to call Trump early on a liar or telling lies. They were very averse to calling the president a liar. Of course, all that shifted quite dramatically after a while. But you were charting some of what was happening in American journalism, political journalism, because in a moment I want to talk about Australian political journalism with our election looming. So as we wrap up 2021 and look back to 2020, how are you seeing American journalism handling what's happening in that country right now? I have completely switched off it, 
Peter. I mean, I, I spent three or four years on it. It drives you mad. I thought Australian politics was completely stuck after the election. I'd given up on it. And then with the bushfires, I thought, oh, I'll go around one more time. You know, surely we're going to do something about climate change now. Then came COVID and then came the fight back with the Voices Movement and Cathy McGowan and Simon Holmes. I'm finding Australian politics really, really interesting. Occasionally, I listen to a podcast in America and it's just the same old thing. It's stuck. It's gone. There's no way out. I think that, you know, basically the media moved in the US because they they had to uh, after the election because the, the lies were just extreme. So they'd say, made the false statement, you know, falsely said the election was, was rigged, all that sort of thing. And I, I think in, in Australia, that is just starting to happen now. The obvious truth that uh, Scott Morrison is, is quite Trump-like in that he, he he changes his reality every day to suit his moment, to suit his Scotty from marketing pitch, and you know the fact that he is a a liar is 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 starting to to penetrate the gallery. I noticed the other day Frydenberg got on Morning Breakfast on ABC and said, "Oh well, these independents—they're just green Labor fronts," and Michael Rowland said, "Well, well, what's your evidence for that?" And he said, "Oh well, an independent ran against me last election and." Preference Labor. Yes, but, <laughs> but what is your evidence that Dr. Monique Ryan is a Green Labor front? Oh, well, you know, it's just, like it, there was no answer. And He said rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. So I think the media is gradually understanding that they have a phenomenon now in Morrison where it is not right to be a stenographer and say Morrison said that, Albanese said that. That is an abrogation of your your duty as a journalist. It's very difficult. You know, obviously, Murdoch Media just does its own thing. In fact, Fox is is leading the charge, saying that you know January six was um, was you know a, a tourist event. So Murdoch's got its own rules. But for the rest of the media, I think they're they're starting to come to the realization that they actively assisted Morrison in winning the last election through deceit, a fair bit of deceit, death tax, all that sort of stuff. And that, you know, it, it might be a good idea to actually do the job this time rather than be mesmerised by his spin. But I mean, who knows? Who knows? Well, I reckon the the whole thing with the New South Wales ICAC, the attack by Morrison in the federal parliament as part of his Gladys Berejiklian cult, go to Warringah and stand there, that was a project he was running, but he did it by attacking New South Wales ICAC, the kangaroo court stuff, extraordinary stuff. And on the whole, the media really were stenographers and amplifiers and a bit of a, a Greek chorus for all that. It was a very discouraging passage of time. How did you view that, Tim, from the other side of the world, that passage? It's been obvious for a while that the media has this um, structural difficulty, not just in terms of who owns the media, which is deeply problematic in Australia where it's, you know, still dominated by one particular company. But even, you know, we've kind of lost Fairfax as well. We've gained the Guardian, I guess. So there's there's that structural problem. There's also, as Margot was just saying, there's the structural problem of journalistic practice where the tools of journalism actually become something that's easily manipulated by governments like the Morrison government or the Trump government. They play on the fact that traditionally the media has sort of set itself up as this objective, simply reporting what people say kind of organisation. And it's very easy to manipulate that. But I think I agree that's a very deeply ingrained thing within newsrooms that this is the job. We have to report what they say. We have to get balancing comment. We have to be as objective as we can. We don't express opinions about this stuff. But it's it's just too easy to manipulate that. And, and honestly, we, people have been saying this forever. They've been saying it with particular urgency since, I think, at least the Iraq war, where the Americans were able to organise invasions of particularly Iraq on the basis of, you know, phony information about WMDs. And that was completely supported by media around the world, particularly in the United States. It's been building for quite a while that this is a problem. 
I think Margot's right. It is sort of coming to a head a bit in certain circles and amongst certain journalists. But there's still a lot of institutional pressure not to change how things are done. So people like Morrison can still get away with this kind of manipulation. It, it, it just stuns me the way Morrison plays the gallery. The whole Berejiklian for Warringah thing was just such a stunt, but they all just went along with it, holus bolus, until it was actually a Sky journalist who said, you know, I made two phone calls and found out she's not running. And even he had a go at all the other journalists who'd been, you know, giving the story oxygen. So there's still a long way to go before I think we can say that the media's turned a corner on this. Tim, I think part of it is that, okay, so I was in the gallery in the late 80s and the 90s, basically, early, early 2000s. So you started from the premise that the Prime Minister was telling the truth and that when he was in a lot of trouble, he might try and manipulate it a bit or, you know, and, and it would be extremely rare that he lied. And if he lied, he'd be under pressure to resign. Yes. You can see the stenography aspect there that, you know, this is a, a person who is the leader of the country, you know, yeah. the elected leader. But it's switched and you can see it with, with Morrison at its peak that truth is meaningless to him. It has yes. no meaning. Everything is a line for a for an image to win the day. And the media had no idea how to handle that the last election. Remember, it was just, he would just sort yeah. of talk, talk and say, oh, I don't care about, and that was it. And poor old Shorten was beaten to death. And I think it's got to the stage now where if you want to play that game as the media, you do know that you are complicit. You do know that this is a man who does not care about whether he lies or not. So that compact of stenography or whatever collapses. Is there a consensus about what is going on? I wouldn't really like to be in the gallery at the moment. I was a maverick at the time, but it was a much different world. I mean, this man is, um, I think he's evil. I think he has got zero morality. The thing that came out in the, in the age today about the, you know, you'd have to say red light political corruption over grants is utter secrecy, his complete outsourcing and, and collapsing of the capacity of the public service and throwing $100 million a year at McKinsey's to tell him what he wants to hear on climate and all that. Like there's something very, very ugly in this government. And it's sort of so divorced from liberalism now that what's left of the moderates, there's just no power. Like in my day, it was pretty evenly balanced. It's something that if the Australian people don't take charge and do something about it this election, then I actually think it's the last chance. I think we're headed into an American-style dystopia if we don't take a stand here. We've got a corrupt government that is incapable of, of rolling out vaccinations to disabled people, Aboriginal people and aged people, their core responsibility, that is completely unable to deliver effective services, that is completely secretive, that lies all the time and that has no vision at all for the future. If we fall for it again, then, you know, we deserve what we get, I reckon. We deserve what we effing get, Tim. And talking about falling for it again, the omens are not good. Just looking at a mini case study recently when, as part of the phony war next federal election, which is on now, what happens? Morrison comes to Melbourne and makes gnocchi in a restaurant. Then he goes and gets his hair cut. And of course, the media laps this up. I watched the media during the Nokia making and there were establishment photojournalists there going, hold the Nokia up a bit higher. No, no, move around this way. Perhaps if we just, perhaps if you do that. In other words, they were art directing the, the photo op. And these are totally confected. They're just a harbinger of what's going to happen during the election. The cosplay will be endless. The hard hats, the high vis, the white coats and all the rest of it. These are ridiculous, absurd events, aren't they? They're organised by political parties. Journalism rocks up and records it. 
and disseminates it. Why is journalism yeah. doing that? Well, Peter, Peter, this is gets back to the on the bus stuff. There yeah. Was a, yeah exactly. started to be a movement last election. The Guardian didn't get on the bus and the Herald, the Sydney Morning Herald, got off the bus halfway through. What is the news value in this shit? If he wants to get his effing haircut or knocky or whatever it is, he can get his own camera people to take a shot and put it on his social media. That has got nothing to do with the news. The shallowness, particularly of the TV stuff, is really coming through here. And look, one of the many good things about the independence movement, it's focused on issues. All these voices groups during COVID, they had forums on climate change and forums on integrity and forums on this and forums on that, Q&As. People are now interested in the issues. And to, to see Morrison just keep going on that old stuff... I don't know. Look, I might be wrong, but I just think it's over, that stuff. I think there's too much at stake now. Now, we all know he's talking to male tradies who might vote Labor and, you know, you get your big ute and your big Bathurst thing and all that sort of stuff. You know, if tradies want to fall for that old stuff, I don't really think they they do. I think that they want to have some substance. But really, I would like to see the media just not get on that bus. I would like them to put themselves in the seats where the bus goes to and report from the outside in. I've argued this for many years, for decades now. Report from the voters' point of view. Otherwise, it's just another circus and we're getting to the stage where these elections can't afford to be circuses anymore. This is a pretty serious election, this one. And if the media doesn't want to take it seriously, well, I think there's community media and people on the ground who will take it seriously and will do their own reporting if the media can't be bothered to do it. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. This is the Transit Zone 2021 Wrap. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Tim Dunlop is in Nice in France and Margot Kingston in Comboyne, regional New South Wales. Tim, you've been watching from France, as you know, the transit zone, Margot and I and some other citizen journalists have been documenting and examining the indie movement. I've recently went to the launch down at Sandringham. Near the water, Zoe Daniel, former ABC journalist, launched her campaign, and I spoke to a lot of the supporters there, nearly all Liberal voters, but they were passionate, really quite different from what we're just describing. Then I went to the recent one in Kuyong, which is Josh Frydenberg's electorate, and again, Professor Monique Ryan, I spoke to people there again, recorded some Vox Pops, and I spoke to a lot of people that I didn't record, nearly all Liberal voters, deeply passionate people, and they've had it. They've really had it. They're over it. That's the other current that's happening within this election. That's in those Liberal Blue Ribbon seats. These are centre-right people. These are the the disaffected Liberal voters. What's happening on the left is harder to discern at the moment. But as you view the independence movement, and you wrote about it recently in one of your op-eds, Tim, how are you viewing all that? Well, I've always been interested in what's happening with the conservative independents. I've given a couple of talks to their groups. I was invited to Warringah before Zali Stegall emerged, when the first Voices of Warringah movement with Louise Hislop got going. And I went up and spoke to a room full of people up there. I did the same in McKellar, went and spoke to them. And again, you know, um, it was at the local RSL club and there's a room full of people. And it was exactly what you described, but it was very engaged, very switched on people in blue ribbon, liberal seats, fairly well-off areas, very well-off areas in some cases, with high levels of education. And the Warringah thing was very specifically about Tony Abbott, but it's developed into something more than that. You know, Zali was not Tony Abbott, and that was her biggest attribute because people were well and truly over Abbott. But part of the reason they were over Abbott was because of climate change. So that became the defining policy position. And it remains that way, I think, with a lot of the independents, even though other things have now come into it. I don't think they are single-issue organisations. Tim, don't forget in Warringah, what people say to me time after time is, I think Warringah was, if not the first, 
not the top, basically very near the top of yes for same-sex marriage. They were 75% and Abbott went into the parliament and walked out rather than vote for it. This social progressive, environmentally green, economically conservative, the party has expelled its liberalism wing. It is now hard right and it's actually staring liberal voters in the face now. They can't get away from the fact that they are actually not being represented. I think that's exactly right. And I, I, I guess what amazes me is it's kind of taken them so long to see this, but they have seen it. I think it's, it's because it Turnbull was a throwback. Yeah, like basically that, that, that's when, probably when, true, actually. When, when Howard won, Houston was the last of it. So when Howard won, remember he closed down climate change. Houston actually had quite a good climate change policy. Closed down climate change close down that liberalism thing, tamper, all that sort of thing. You'll find the moderates um, are much more sympathetic to, to both people than some people in Labor, really. Close down, close down, close down, culminated in Abbott knocking off Turnbull in the Rudd era. That's when it was completely yeah. over. And then the Turnbull prime ministership was a throwback because Abbott was such a disaster. And I, yeah. I think that the the end of Turnbull, the second beheading of Turnbull, was when smaller Liberal voters started to realise that it's actually over. We don't have power anymore. And if you look at the last election, even though Labor was promising to tax the rich in several ways, the swings in the blue ribbon seats were away from the government, whereas Howard's backlers came back in spades to Morrison. So it's been going a while. It's been gradually building and then, yeah. so when you get this term where you get a totally corrupt government and they won't meet their promise of a federal ICAC, you have a joke of a climate change policy and you have a collapse in women's representation in the Libs, again, because of the death of, of liberalism. And then Morrison not only refusing to meet the women at the March rally in Canberra, but standing up in Parliament after the rally saying, it's lucky you weren't shot. I mean, it's a Liberal Party that has, it's got nothing to do with liberalism. It's finished. And I think that this movement, which I believe was turbocharged by COVID, it's just got to a stage where people go, oh, okay, what next? Which is really why I see this this movement really as effectively a split in the Liberal Party. I think that's a really good summary, Margot. I think the, the point about Turnbull is spot on. I think when you, when you guys spoke to Carla Tink the other day, she, she basically said that, that um, she thought it had all come back with Malcolm Turnbull. Yes, then, yes. Then, then, then Morrison took over and that's what really brought her up short. And, she, well, you know, like a lot of these people, that I think they realise the party has left me, therefore I have to leave the party. And, you know, good on them for putting their hand up as candidates. So I think it, I think it's a really interesting movement. I think it's a really positive movement in Australian democracy. I really do wish them all, all the best to the extent that it undermines what the Liberal Party has become, you know, all power to them. But I, I do worry that ultimately there are some contradictions within their stance, as you say, that socially liberal socially very liberal in some ways, Mm. economically conservative, is going to be a problem for them in any sort of governing role, ultimately. But for the moment, they're a necessary reaction to what the mainstream Liberal Party has become. The mainstream Liberal Party is not as bad as the mainstream Republican Party in America, but it's going down the same track. It's that move away from a broad-based democracy into something much more reactionary and right-wing and disturbing, actually. Power for its own sake, almost. Tim, you wrote an op-ed recently examining, interrogating the whole phenomenon of the independence. We're still hearing at the moment those four pillars, climate change, integrity, the federal ICAC, democratic representation and gender equity. They're the four pillars of the Indies movement, but all of them are are branching out now into other things, including mental health, aged care, etc. They're all nibbling around at other issues, and that's before the election's even called. But you interrogated them, and I guess you could describe it as they're facing the problem of squaring the circle around capitalism, aren't they? The very nature of the the profit motive. And that's going to play out in very interesting ways, because at the end of the day, climate change can't be solved just by 
other business opportunities or even renewables and using lots of solar and wind, that's not going to solve climate change ultimately. I think that's right. And if you hitch a wagon to capitalism and climate change, there's an inherent contradiction in that. Let's get the next election out of the way. I don't think this is something that should bring them undone. It might actually be just as they've had a realisation about the nature of the Liberal Party, I think this might be the next realisation for a lot of these independents that you can't just kind of have green business as usual and claim to be a champion of the environment, that those two things at certain points clash. I have to say I was a little bit disturbed. I don't know what you guys think of this. I was on Facebook yesterday and I noticed that Kylie Tink is doing a lot of They're basically advertisements for local businesses. I understand, you know, she's trying to be supportive of local businesses in her electorate who have suffered a lot during lockdowns, etc. But it seems to me that gets into a very weird area for a political representative to be essentially running ads on their Facebook page for local businesses. I don't think there's anything necessarily sinister in it. I think it's it's basically well-meaning, but it's just an interesting example of maybe they don't fully understand the nature of being a representative in a parliament where you have to represent everybody, not just particular interests. This is another thing I've noticed with them. They, they, they talk about representing the people of their electorate, and that's very obviously what any local representative is meant to do, you represent your electorate and and put their views in the parliament. But once you're a member of the parliament, you've got a bigger obligation to the country in general. So, you, you know, you can't just be that narrowly focused. It's a problem that representatives always come up against at the end of the day. But I just, I just thought it was interesting that she was running these posts that amounted to advertisements for local businesses. I mean, it just seems to me to move into a weird area in politics for that to happen. Margot, you've thought a lot, I imagine, about what might happen with a hung parliament coming out of this next federal election. And you've had a fair bit to do with the Indies and you've looked at their philosophies, etc. How do you imagine it all playing out if, in fact, there is a hung parliament, a little bit like a, a Gillard-Abbott scenario all over again, perhaps with Morrison holding the whip hand in terms of inviting independents into giving confidence and supply? How do you see that playing out in your imagination? And after a government is formed, how do you see the crossbench in this next era? Well, look, you know, my my main concern at the moment is is how do candidates answer this question? It's terribly hypothetical. Like, we could easily be in a situation where Labor gets the most seats and they govern with the support of Andrew Wilkie and, and Adam Bant. You just don't know. So what you're postulating is that another one or two independents are, are, let's pretend none are elected. Say Zali, Helen and Rebecca hold the balance of power. Just say we get another two, I reckon we we get Allegra, I think Allegra Spender will come in and maybe Zoe Daniel. They're they're the, the two standouts at the moment. Here you have people who are representing liberal seats. They are elected as liberal, small l, liberal representatives. So you could imagine that their constituents would like there to be a Liberal government. However, they have been elected on a pretty strong platform and it's unimaginable they would say, oh yes, we'll we'll give you supply and confidence and you can keep doing what you like on, on a Federal Integrity Commission and climate change. They could well give supply and confidence, but work with the Parliament, with the Labor and the rest of the crossbench, to pass a climate change bill. You know, there'd have to be a a negotiation with Labor and a strong Federal Integrity Commission bill, and they could probably insist on the Helen Haynes bill. Now, that would make a Morrison government very unstable, wouldn't it? Very unstable. What they'll say at the moment, what they are saying, is that they will go and consult their constituency, their voters, And the thing about an Independence Day campaign is that the only way the Independent wins in these safe Liberal seats is if they finish second to the sitting MP. And to finish second, they have to gain disaffected Liberal votes, Labor votes and Green votes, number one. 
I think that the MPs will have no choice but to say we absolutely insist on strong climate change action in the Federal Integrity Commission and that Morrison government may be unable to deliver that, in which case confidence and supply to the Libs and will go with Labor to get those things through. Or maybe Morrison's party or cabal, whatever you call it after the election, will be so traumatised by the idea of having a strong climate change action and a strong Federal Integrity Commission that they would prefer to be in opposition. Does any of that make sense, Tim? I think this is the other big difficulty that they're going to have if they have to make this decision. I just don't see how they can support a Morrison government at the end of the day. I don't see how they give support to him remaining Prime Minister after running the campaigns that they're running. It's a huge problem because, as you say, their electorates are liberal and there probably is something of an expectation that they would give supply to a liberal government as opposed to a Labor government. But this is the contradiction that they're balancing on at the moment is that how in God's name can they honestly support Scott Morrison for Prime Minister. It just beggars belief after everything that they've stood for. So it's going to be really interesting. And maybe they get around it in the way that you're suggesting, which is, you know, they'll guarantee supply, but they will vote how they want on an issue-by-issue basis. And I I suspect that's where they'll land. But it, it still seems to me there's a huge amount of hypocrisy in these independents being the vehicle for the return of the Morrison government. Well, look, it'll be very interesting because, you know, obviously everyone's sort of very well aware of what happened to Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott when they made their arrangements with Gillard. Those arrangements were very advantageous to the seats of New England and um, Cowper. I think it might have been Lyon he was in. They got enormous um, university facilities and NBNs and their electorates would not forgive them for giving confidence and supply to a Labor government. So I'm not sure if that would be the same now, given that uh, Morrison's government is, is so corrupt. But the way they would have to handle it if they are going to go across to Labor is they would have to have serious, serious consultations with their electorate. And my guess is they would have to commission a poll because there is no way with their rhetoric that the genuine representation thing, that if their electorate wants them to give confidence and supply to Morrison, that that they really do have to give it. But I would not be surprised if it's got to the stage where the majority of the electorate might want confidence and supply to Labor because it's staring us in the face how bad this government is, isn't it? And as um, Peter can attest, there is a lot of anger in Liberal Party circles about what this government has done, particularly on climate change and integrity. I've been to three launches now, one in the in the regions, Hume, one in Hughes, Southern Sydney, and one in Wentworth. And the common thread was standing ovation on integrity. I think that's a big thing across the country. There is no way that a a Liberal independent could give confidence and supply to Morrison and not work with Labor to enact a very strong Federal Integrity Commission bill, which, of course, could then investigate the previous Morrison government. So it starts to get very, very icky, doesn't it? And Federal OCAC was the big applause line for Monique Ryan at her launch in Kooyong as well. That was the one that really raised the roof. Exactly the same. Now, look, there is another aspect to the calculus, isn't there, Tim? The fact that most of the independents, as I understand it, are looking at roughly 50, perhaps even 60 percent. I think Kylie Tink left room to move on the 2030 emissions percentage cut, but Labor's running with 43 percent. So that, that's an interesting bit of the equation as well, isn't it, Tim? Yeah, absolutely. I think Sally Stegall's bill for climate change has clauses in there that allow for a re-investigation of targets, etc. And I think that's a, a good and a smart thing to be in there. But just sort of kept coming back to this point with a lot of this stuff that it's not just the candidates. I think just listening to what Margaret was saying about the electorates and what they want and what they might be willing to put up with in terms of, you know, which government the independents ultimately support, those blue ribbon liberal sets, if they turn, they have to confront this contradiction as well, that you can't yes. just go back to it being, you know, a kind of a Malcolm Fraser or Malcolm Turnbull version of the Liberal Party and it's just a, a kind of a 
noblesse oblige, business-led, benefit-of-the-country sort of party in that kind of best sense of that kind of liberalism. Climate change is going to force people up against the reality of the kind of economic system that we have, and it doesn't just fall neatly back into that old-fashioned pro-business liberal paradigm at all. So a lot of people are going to have to confront these contradictions at the end of the day, and I'm not quite sure that we're ready for that, (laughs) but we're going to have to be. Well, Tim, I've got a very romantic notion of all this, which is that (laughs) you'll love this, okay? This is my joke to end the year, right? So a lot of these seats that that are rising up are federation seats in the city and the country. Wentworth is a federation seat. Kooyong is a federation seat. Wannan is a federation seat. There's quite a few of them. And my notion is that that this independence movement, this split, if you like, this reassertion of liberalism values is really a request for us to rethink the compact. We've been around for 120 years now as a federation. We've had lots of fights along the way. We've now got climate change as a problem. We've got the role of government as a, as a problem. We've got incredible inequality as a problem. We've got city, country as a problem. My sort of dream in all this is that the independents will be able to perhaps negotiate a new compact for Australia. I mean, don't forget that the core of liberalism, you know, John Stuart Mill, is greatest happiness for the greatest number. There is strong elements in liberalism, and Menzies showed this, of trying to have a, a bit of a balance. And neoliberalism is not really an element of liberalism, in my opinion. And I think there is a slight chance that this movement, if it can survive the onslaught that will come, and I have grave doubts whether it can, that it actually could be a fresh start for Australia. Tim, you're an unusual Australian in that you've been able to do a bit of tourism. There you are in Nice. (laughs) What a hardship posting you chose for yourself there in the south of France on the Côte d'Azur. I guess it's even as winter comes upon you it's still pretty warm and you popped off to a few beautiful places you were able to pop across to Venice as well so how has plucking yourself out of Melbourne as a writer as a creative person both in non-fiction of course you're writing a novel as well what has that done to your creative brain how has it changed your lens if it has oh it's it's great like we've been very lucky to be able to do this and The trip was completely driven by our concern that it would be another year until we got to see our son who works in this part of the world. So that's why we decided to come over. We had no idea when Australia's borders were going to reopen. In fact, it's all been thrown into flux again. So that was was the motivating force. But again, we were lucky to be in a position to be able to do it as a writer, take your pen and paper anywhere, you can write anywhere. I personally find it great to be away from home, to have a little bit of distance and isolation from the kind of the normal events of life. Like I'm reasonably disciplined as a writer, you know, I get up early every morning and just do the work and that's what I've been doing here. But there is something liberating about, you know, I think a lot of writers find this, that living somewhere other than where they normally live is an advantage. So, yeah, I've been very grateful to be able to do that. And you're right, we've done a little bit of touring, but, you know, it it sounds very fancy to go to Aix-en-Provence and places like that up and down the coast here, but one of the pleasures of it is it's basically public transport. You get on the the local TGV train and it's, you know, to go to somewhere like can or Monaco or even across the border to places like San Remo or something, it's a couple of euro on the train. Axon Provence, we caught the bus, you know, it was like catching a Graham bus up there. Places like Ayres, which is a lovely mountaintop town not far from here, you literally get on the bus outside our door and pay one euro with our little tickets and off you go. It's been great to be able to take advantage of that relatively cheap getting around it. It's interesting just to see this kind of older culture and, and how it's changed over the years and how it's reacting to things at the moment. So 
Yeah, it's kind of a bottomless source of stuff to write about. So there'll probably be lots, lots more articles of uh, me reflecting on this sort of stuff. And what about being trapped outside the language culture there? Because I know your spouse uh, speaks pretty fluent French, obviously. Your son working there speaks pretty fluent French too, but you don't speak much French. So what's it like being shut out, watching television, watching the news, watching current affairs, watching culture programs? It's a mixed blessing. I honestly wish I did have more of the language. It would be great. In terms of day-to-day, it's not a problem. Partly because Nice is a bit of a tourist town. There's a fair bit of English here. So you generally don't have trouble day-to-day with stuff. You kind of bluff your way through it or embarrass your way through it. People in shops and restaurants are fantastic. They're they're so nice about it, to make the obvious pun. France has got a presidential election coming up soon, and I'd like to be able to follow that a lot more closely in in the local media, but I'm kind of relying on Google Translate for or Figaro or whatever news sources we're looking at. And I'm completely lost watching the news on TV. I can barely follow it at all. It is difficult, but it's manageable. What's the favourite thing that's happened to you? What French thing? What discovery? What surprise? What's the <laughs> what's the, uh, the major takeout for you? Without a doubt, just how lovely the local people are. Without a doubt. It's just been a revelation because I think a lot of us do have this notion of the arrogant French in our head, and it's been the complete opposite of that. Not just day-to-day people in supermarkets or shopping centres or restaurants or whatever, but, you know, other people that we've we've met, friends of our sons, etc. Just this incredible warmth and friendliness and welcoming feeling that you get from being here. I don't know if it's just the fact that it's tourist towns so they're used to dealing with us foreigners, but it's really noticeable and it's just been lovely. It's been great to see you, Tim. We were just a little bit underwhelmed by the roll neck sweater. The beret was, we thought it was a bit much, really. And um, <laughs> <laughs> you can go and take it all off now. Go put my boardies and t shirt back on. <laughs> exactly. It's been great to see you, mate. And thank you very much for joining us for this 2021 wrap here on the Transit Zone. Bon Noël. <laughs> Happy New Year. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Peter. It's great talking to you both. Yeah, and it's just it's just great hearing your voice again and your and your opinions, Tim. I um, always find you very challenging and interesting to to talk with. And we'll see each other again in 2022. Happy New Year, and thank you, Margot. Have a rest, enjoy Convoyne, and we'll see you in 2022. It's going to be a corker. Thank you, Margot. Thank you. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here's our email address: transitzonepod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes for 2022. Pod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. And please join us again in 2022 right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit, the transit Zone. zone.